Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right, listeners. Well, um, well, last you heard us kind of introduce our take on uh, Corona fever and how it relates to the empire and our veterans project and uh, sort of left-leaning uh, veterans pod. But, you know, today we're really lucky to have uh, Chris Hedges, uh, the esteemed Chris Hedges, on the pod. Uh, we've had some great guests recently, and I think this one really has to top it. So uh, I'm going to embarrass uh, Chris a little bit, but... Uh, you know, it's funny, when I started writing for Truth Dig, uh, Chris had been the, sort of their lead or top columnist for a while, and I was just kind of happy to be there. And uh, A year or two passed, and I was starting to get a little more play, and uh, I was just sort of excited to be on the same page. And I kept waiting for that moment, you know, in my uh, fantasies where, you know, Chris is going to reach out. He's going to send me an email and tell me I'm the greatest uh, writer of my generation. And, uh, you know, eventually he... <laughs> He didn't say that, uh, nor should he have. But uh, but he reached out. And we've we've been in touch and talked a few times, and that's that's just really been exciting. So you know, thanks, Chris, for coming on. Sure. And uh, so just for a bio for you guys who don't know, you know, um, Chris is obviously a, a columnist. Uh, he was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He still is. You know, best selling author, professor uh, in the college degree program at the New York, you know, for New Jersey State prisoners at Rutgers University as well as an ordained Presbyterian minister. He's written 12 books. Uh, I know I've read them all. I think most of us have, uh, including War is a Force or Gives Us Meaning, which, of course, was 2003, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. But, you know, this book spoke to me personally because I read it in Baghdad in 2007, which was really an interesting moment to read it. I'm sure other people have had that experience. Uh, other notable books for this conversation that we'll probably bring up are uh, Empire of Illusion, the End of Literacy and the Triumph of Spectacle, that was 2009, uh, and his latest, America the Farewell Tour, which sounds more prescient than ever, that was in 2018. He also uh, hosts the show On Contact on RT America. So Chris was uh, two decades as a foreign correspondent, I mean, around the world, Central America, the Middle East, Africa, the Balkans. He was kind of there when, when matters were happening, you know, especially in the 90s before people were paying attention to uh, what eventually became 9-11 and this, this global war. Uh, he worked a lot of that time for the New York Times, stood up to the corporate media uh, after, you know, uh, getting a formal reprimand for publicly denouncing the George W. Bush administration. So uh, he has a bachelor's in English literature, uh, a master of divinity. Uh, that last part, I think, a rather important aspect of his work. I'm sure we'll talk about it. And uh, finally, though, I'm quite certain he's sick of hearing it from so many young activists. I know I can speak for we three in saying that kind of, he's kind of been a personal inspiration and a major influence on all of us. So thanks again, Chris, for taking the time with us today. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Sure. Well, 
you know, Chris, predictions or maybe perhaps more accurately diagnoses of the American political cultural disease has, it seems at least, been kind of your stock, stock in trade in some recent books. Uh, that, no doubt, is a tricky matter, uh, as predictions always are, if that's even really what you're going for. But forgive the increasingly, at least these days, cliche, but, you know, in light of that, how have you viewed this moment? You know, uh, I mean, what stands out to you in the American zeitgeist response to coronavirus from, you know, political, military or cultural standpoints? So two things uh, I find interesting about this kind of very tragic moment that we're undergoing. Uh, one is that it exposes the rot decay within the system itself. Uh, the uh, seizure of power by corporate uh, neoliberal forces that have hollowed the country out from the inside. Uh, so uh, that is something that I have been writing about for a long time. Uh, the, you know, the appalling lack of hospital beds, the uh, lack of preparedness, because of course it's not efficient to stockpile ventilators or uh, protective equipment for medical workers in anticipation of a crisis. Um, I mean, the irony is that this is what actually what the military, when it functions, does really well. It, it prepares for, uh, you know, the, the worst that might come. Uh, but we didn't do that as a country. Corporations don't make money off of that. Uh, the uh, failure of the entire healthcare system in terms of protecting the citizenry, you have huge segments of the country who are essentially outside uh, the healthcare system, uh, not only 11 million undocumented uh, workers, but the 80 million underinsured or uninsured, 58% of the people get employee-sponsored uh, health care of the workforce. Uh, they've all lost their jobs. Where do they go? Um, you uh, are seeing, uh, because of the craven subservience on the part of elected officials towards corporate power, the passage of a so-called stimulus bill where we're bailing out airlines. I mean, this is, we know what they're going to do with this money because we watched them do it in 2008. Um, they give themselves bonuses, they buy back their own stocks, and they lay off the workforce. Um, so these were all issues that I have been writing about, not only in terms of the economic and political decay, but the cultural decay. You mentioned Empire of Illusion, the end of literacy and the triumph of spectacle, which is why we have a reality show a television host as president, the inability to uh, discern the difference between fact and fiction, because of course his persona on The Apprentice was a fictional persona, it was created for a television audience. Uh, and uh, the rise of a huge uh, segment of the population trapped in magical thinking, the Christian right. I also wrote a book on them, I'm American fascist, the Christian right in the war in America. You know, you have megachurch pastors still holding services. Uh, Trump is a product of magical thinking, um, uh, that inability to uh, separate fact from fiction, the merging of fact and fiction, which is always uh, one of the telltale signs of a totalitarian system. So that so the 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 uh, inability of the uh, corporate state to cope with uh, this catastrophe uh, is because it has essentially been dismantled in large part uh, to serve the consolidation of corporate power and corporate wealth. Um, so that I have been written about. I, I you know it's always fascinating to watch how history plays out. I didn't predict the Occupy movement um, 
Uh, in fact, I learned quite a bit from it. Uh, and I didn't predict a pandemic. Um, I knew that I wrote about uh, stress, about that the system couldn't handle stress. And then that would propel us into a very frightening uh, trajectory. Um, but, you know, when I kind of wrote my litany of what that would be, it would be economic collapse, which is, of course, we're getting, but it's uh, accelerated by the pandemic, uh, uh, a catastrophic domestic terrorist attack or, uh, you know, climate change, coastal cities being wiped out. But I think it's this pandemic has, has re-changed or has changed in, in very dramatic ways the configuration of American society. Uh, and and uh, whatever comes out of this, it, it won't look like what it looked like before. Uh, what, if anything, you know, has anything surprised you? In, in this response or in the way either government or just society in general is handling this? No, it hasn't surprised me because I, I spent a lot of time examining how these centers of power work, how corporate power works. Um, but, of course, the response is not a rational response. Um, we, we, in fact, we, we haven't really had a response because we can't test for the virus. Uh, it's spreading exponentially. We can't control it. You can't control it if you can't test. Um, and uh, the economic shock now will, will be catastrophic because it's not just about uh, millions of people, what, 10 million people have filed for unemployment or something. It's not simply about a projected now 30% unemployment rate, but the way that that whole system then unravels because people can't pay their rent, uh, they don't can't pay their credit card companies, um, the, the whole house of cards begins to fall down. People default on their student debt, um, and we are a society built on debt peonage largely. It's, a, it's, it's built on consumption and debt peonage. We don't really make anything except weapons anymore. Um, and uh, and so uh, the uh, anemic quality of the economic and political structures that have been put in place uh, cannot withstand these very seismic shocks. Um, and how far will it go? Um, you know, what what will be the final outcome? Again, I was too spent too many years as a newspaper reporter to to try and predict, but it won't be good. Um, there certainly will be unrest. Uh, you know, we're already seeing rippling rent strikes in places like St. Louis, um, but lacking a coherent vision, an alternative vision to corporate power. Um, these localized uprisings can be dealt with and very ruthlessly crushed. We have created mechanisms within the United States through wholesale surveillance, the militarization of police, the use of terrorism laws, which have been directed primarily at Muslim activists. So here uh, uh, people are charged. They're not allowed, in secret trials. They're not allowed to see the evidence uh, if there is any evidence, but they're not allowed to see the evidence arrayed against them, used to convict them. Um, people, I've been involved in this, I mean, uh, these cases, like Fahad Hashmi and others, are essentially being uh, imprisoned. He's in a supermax prison for speech, for what they said. Um, and so uh, the demonization of Muslims uh, essentially saw the society complicit in the creation of legal mechanisms by which uh, they 
were put on show trials, uh, stripped of all their rights and imprisoned. And, and uh, within marginal communities, uh, de-industrialized communities where mostly poor people of color live uh, in these urban pockets, uh, the militarization of police has been accompanied by the right of police, in essence, to revoke habeas corpus and due process and, you know, kick down doors at two in the morning with carrying long-barreled weapons and Kevlar vests uh, for nonviolent drug warrants. Um, I mean, terror is not, uh, you know, a thousand, what, a thousand people a year, I think, are killed by police, most all of whom are unarmed. So what you've done is created both legal and physical mechanisms that should there be unrest outside of these, what Malcolm X called internal colonies, uh, the rest of the country can be held in subjugation. So that, that, that's, my, that's my greatest fear. Um, I, the left in this country is so disorganized and anemic, that's not the fault of the left. There's been a war against the left uh, starting with the 1948 Taft-Hartley Act after World War II, which was a major uh, crippling blow to unionization. Um, the press is a joke. Uh, I mean, MSNBC, which is uh, purportedly left or liberal, it's not. It's owned by Comcast. Um, it, it's just inclusive corporate capitalism as opposed to Fox News, which is racist corporate corporate capitalism, but it doesn't confront the structures of power in any meaningful way. Um, so, you know, all of the mechanisms by which a public is informed and empowered, the kind of system of legalized bribery that allows corporations to fund candidates. Uh, I mean, the, the specter of Joe Biden, I mean, is really, really Joe Biden the best that the Democratic Party can come up with? Um, but of course, he was anointed and chosen by the corporate donors. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> Last column I wrote for Truth Dig before I got fired um, was on, you know, the one choice election, which is who's going to manage corporate power. Um, and, you know, they always tell us, the, the, the masses that are the Democratic, you know, those people who veer towards the Democratic Party, that uh, it's the least worst, least worst. You got to, you can't, don't vote for Nader because you got to vote for the least worst, which is uh, Kerry or uh, Hillary Clinton or whoever it is they cough up. But that doesn't apply to them. Uh, and they've been, they were quite frank about it, that if, Bernie Sanders became the nominee. Big donors like Lloyd Blankfein, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, said they'd all vote for Trump. Um, so uh, he, he, there really, really is no, uh, you know, major uh, or important political difference between the Republican and the Democratic parties. There, as Ralph Nader said, it's a duopoly. Um, you know, yeah, one comes with a more tolerant attitude. Um, but on all of the major issues, imperialism, the surveillance state, uh, trade agreements, uh, there, there's no, there is no difference. There's complete uh, unanimity. And, uh, and I think that's dangerous because the whole ideological basis of neoliberalism has lost all of its credibility. That, that's what empowered Trump. People are angry and have every right to be angry at the elites. But, of course, he does what demagogues do, which is take it out on the vulnerable and the you know undocumented and Muslims and African Americans and others. Um, and uh, and that anger and rage is only going to be uh, increased as the system fails to confront 
the most basic needs of working men and women and the working poor, which it already had failed to do. But now we are really going to see the kind of bread lines that I used to see in Yugoslavia during the war that stretch 10 blocks long, uh, the inability to find any kind of employment, um, uh, and a ratcheting up of police and state power to keep the population in check. Uh, Chris, I'm glad you brought up Taft-Hartley, uh, you know, which of course clamped down on unions. I think what strikes me about that, and Kagan wants to follow up with some economics, is you know, that was a backlash against the last great or one of the last great economic crises. You know, it was only 12 years after FDR and his sort of, you know, uh, liberal approach and the Wagner Act had given some of these same rights to labor. And then there's this backlash afterwards, which I imagine we'll probably see. But yeah, Kagan, so I'll turn it over to you uh, to, to kind of address some of the, the economic components of this. Um, thanks, Chris. Uh, you put a lot of good points on there, and I really appreciate that. Um, I, uh, personally, like I used to work, I was in the Navy and I worked in the NSA, um, doing different intelligence operations in the Middle East and specifically more in Yemen and Syria. Um, now I work for uh, a county here in Portland area, Portland, Oregon, and I'm trying to, uh, I work with homeless veterans, getting them housed and resources and things like that. So when you talk about the people on the bottom of the spectrum, I am keenly aware because that's people I work with every day. And not only are they, you know, emotionally, mentally, and physically vulnerable, um, they, like you said, they've already been there. And I, I have some people that are getting tested right now for the virus. And um, it's just really frustrating when, you know, their lives have already been stretched so much. And then something like this comes along and just makes it, 10 to a million times worse, right? And we have to try and do what we can with our limited scope, you know, uh, as um, people, like as the case managers, you know, we have, we're always dealing with limited resources and services. So it's, uh, it's making things pretty difficult. But I wanted to ask you specifically about oil prices because the storage reserves are getting full and, uh, oil, oil prices might drop. I'm wondering, you know, what what's that? What does that do for us um, economically? And also, what does that do for our operations in the countries that, uh, you know, because we care so much about the price of oil, um, and our, our operations tied so closely with that? How do you see that changing as um, the oil prices change? Well, that'll be you know one more economic shock along with numerous economic shocks. Uh, so, um, and then, of, you know, of course, because so much of our oil comes from shale and fracking, um, uh, you're going to see, but, but I mean, this is just one sector. It's a major sector, but it's just one sector that's taking a huge economic hit. I mean, every sector of the American economy is, is taking gigantic hits. Um, the, you know, hospitality sector, the airline sector, um, and because we can't contain the virus or we, we don't have the capacity to, to identify it and control it, um, this potentially can go on for a really long time, um, which will send the economy into a kind of death spiral because how long can these 
small businesses uh, afford not to function. Uh, you know, we have what people get are going to get checks depending on their income level of a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars. That money is going to go right to their landlord or to the credit card companies, uh, and then what? Uh, what happens after, what is it, four months, I think they get, or you get of unemployment, what happens after that? Uh, these are short-term, very meager, poultry, and largely symbolic short-term offerings to a very distressed public. Um, uh, meanwhile, Wall Street rallies. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I think the, the oil sector is just one component in a, in a, uh, a, a deeply deteriorating economic uh, landscape, uh, where the you know the Fed is now printing billions of dollars. Uh, of course, the death blow to the American economy is when the dollar is no longer the world's reserves currency. Then its value will plummet. We know what it's going to look like because in the 1950s, up until the 1950s, the British pound sterling was the world's reserves currency. And uh, it, it, that ch changed. Uh, the dollar became the world's reserve currency in the 50s. And the British economy went into a nosedive. Um, so we're playing a, a dangerous game. We can afford to create this kind of money uh, as long as uh, the world continues to use the dollar as its, as its primary currency, but you see both the Russians and the Chinese and others uh, attempting to move away from the dollar. And that will be catastrophic. That will be the moment in which there's no going back because the American economy will then uh, 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 essentially constrict to such an extent that it can't afford to maintain its empire. It, it, uh, then we really will truly become a kind of third world country with nukes, which is kind of what we already are. Um, it's just now it's being exposed. You know, it's long been the case, of course, uh, but it's increasingly clear that economics, as you've mentioned, is inextricably linked with the American empire. And so kind of what I want to address next is, you know, one of my favorite books of yours was Empire of Illusion. Uh, which I even forced my ex-wife to read. So you may have that break up, at least partly on your conscience. <laughs> but, you know, the title to the casual reader, maybe it's misleading to them, you know, uh, as you largely are actually talking about the gap between reality and illusion in the book in, in the cultural realm as much as anything. However, reading it, I got the sense that the thesis applies quite well uh, to American empire in the more standard sense, something that we talk a lot about here. So, to what degree and what things specifically do you think the events of the last few months have exposed about the nature and mechanics of empire, of, of this American empire, this third world country with nukes? Right. So, of course, what we've done is use our resources to fund these futile and endless wars in the Middle East. Well, I don't know, nobody knows the exact amount, but five to seven trillion dollars at least. And uh, this you know, these disastrous military fiascos are a characteristic of all late empires. Uh, historians call it micro-militarism. Uh, and so you saw, for instance, uh, at the end of the Greek Empire, the uh, Greek-Athenian uh, Empire, they invade Sicily and their entire uh, 
all of their uh, navy, almost all their navy is sunk and they're slaughtered. Uh, and then the empire fragments and disintegrates. Um, you saw in 1956, the British attempt to, after Nasser uh, nationalizes the Suez Canal, uh, which is considered vital to British interests, uh, there's this disastrous attempt to invade Egypt and seize it, and they have to retreat in humiliation. That was kind of, the British Empire declined uh, slowly uh, after uh, it, it's uh, the suicidal folly of World War I, um, but it ended with that example of micromilitarism. So I spent seven years in the Middle East, uh, and for me, the in invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq was the greatest strategic blunder in American history. Um, it, it, uh, it, it, it not only diverted all of our resources to uh, a, a project that we could never win, that in fact we've lost, um, uh, but it tarnished forever uh, the notion of American uh, power and American hegemony because, of course, it was a unilateral decision to go in. It wasn't like the first Gulf War, which I covered. I went into Kuwait with 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, um, it, it, where there was a, a diplomatic effort by James Baker, then Secretary of State, to uh, bring in a coalition. I mean, we actually had Syrian and Egyptian troops stationed in northern Saudi Arabia. They, we, I went, I was with the Marine Corps. We drove by them. Literally, the Syrians were drinking tea. They, they didn't engage in any of the fighting, but they were used for the photo op of, we were, we were actually north of Kuwait City with the Marines. And, um, but they wouldn't let us go into the, I went in alone, but the Marines weren't allowed to go in because the liberation of the city were, was carried out by quote unquote Arab coalition partners who had never fired a shot at an Iraqi, but that wasn't why they were there. So that was, um, uh, a kind of example, or maybe one of the last examples of the recognition by the managers of empire that you can't go it alone. Um, but Bush was different, uh, Cheney and Bush and these figures. So uh, it, I, I think that the decline of the United States is inextricably tied up with its decision to uh, uh, exhaust its resources, its its capital, and its credibility in these twenty year, almost twenty year projects of endless war, um, and uh, in the process, of course, we have become throughout much of the world pariahs. That's not understood by most Americans, um, and and this has been capped with uh, the election of Donald Trump, who's uh, you know, buffoonish and inept, and uh, so it's it's all part of the same. Uh, you know, it kind of closes the circle with the uh, disastrous decisions in terms of the management of empire. I mean, in fact, uh, if you look at the early uh, stages of any empire, they 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 actually use military force quite judiciously and quite sparingly. It's the later stage of empire where they're desperately trying to capture a lost glory um, that they can't, uh, that they begin to make these huge military uh, blunders that uh, result in, in, in their destruction, their self-destruction. That was certainly true if you go back and look at the monarchies 
on the eve of World War One, whether that was, I mean, World War One was the death of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the death of uh, the German monarchy, uh, the death of Tsarist Russia, um, because they miscalculated and they didn't understand. And that's exactly what we've done in the Middle East. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us, but we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with somebody, anyone whom you think might be affected by it. Maybe a young person looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, uh, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military can create for minorities and also inflicts on minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a minute and share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and other crap I can't think of right now. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Arends, Gage Counts, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, James O'Barr, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you very much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt. The great Bill Kropinski did an awesome job designing our first shirt which you can find at shop.spreadshirt.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Hi, Chris. I'm uh, Henry, one of the co-hosts. I, I'm an Army veteran. Uh, military police. I served uh, two tours in Iraq. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, the, the strategy and tactics of protesting. You've spoken a lot about certain groups' tactics, discussing how Antifa's use of violence just furthers the other side's argument more than helping their own, along with criticism of the Weather Underground's promotion and use of violence during anti-war protests for the Vietnam War. My question is, is that if you were writing a manual for protesting, what kind of strategy or tactics would you pursue? I, I recall hearing a, a, a speech of yours where you mentioned buying a, a bunch of junk cars and using them kind of as a means of protest. Obstruction, uh, you know, nonviolent resistance uh, to muck up the system so it doesn't work. So what you're referring to is I was with a bunch of activists in Boston and they're running one of these huge pipelines 
right through one of these outer neighborhoods of Boston. Uh, and they had tried everything, uh, you know, meeting with their elected representatives, petitions, uh, publicity of the environmental danger and health danger of doing this, and not to mention the fact that we need to end our reliance on fossil fuels, and nothing had worked. And I said, well, you know, what you need to do is buy a bunch of old cars uh, and uh, drive them into where the construction is going to take place. Uh, and take the batteries out and block the road. Um, I mean, so any kind of activity that begins to hamper, this is why I was at Standing Rock, uh, the assault by these forces against the ecosystem that essentially carry out this process of ecocide. Um, I mean, I was around a lot of violence. I spent five years in the war in El Salvador. I was in Gaza. I covered the civil war in Algeria, the Sudan. I uh, was, as I mentioned, went into Kuwait in the first Gulf War, uh, spent a lot of time with the Kurds, um, was uh, then three years covering the war in the former Yugoslavia. And um, I, I'm not a pacifist, um, although I don't think that even in a quote-unquote just cause, when you use violence, it protects you from the poison that violence is. I've seen what it does to people. Um, I mean, including my own family members. My uncle fought in the South Pacific in World War II and came back a physical and emotional wreck, drank himself to death. Um, so, uh, but violence just within the confines of, I mean, just from logistical point of view, if you study how violence works, let's take the Algerian War of Independence. The, the only way the Algerians were able to mount a concerted armed campaign was because they had Tunisia. They had a bordering country by, that they could use to uh, uh, bring in weapons. Um, this was true when I covered the war in El Salvador. Uh, they needed Nicaragua as a kind of conduit in order to bring in armed supplies. Uh, they trained, and you know, you you, you can't uh, you can't uh, attempt to carry out a civil war unless you have a uh, a bordering country that uh, essentially acts as your surrogate. That it just doesn't work. Um, so uh, the the whole idea that people can mount armed resistance within the heart of empire is. Uh, just logistically untenable. Um, I uh, also, because I've covered all sorts, I've covered all the revolutions in Eastern Europe, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Romania, uh, the, the two Palestinian uprisings, the intifadas, the street demonstrations that brought down Milosevic. I'm aware that, uh, that no revolutionary movement succeeds until uh, a significant sector of the foot soldiers of the ruling apparatus, that's the police and the military, essentially defect or refuse to protect the regime. That was certainly what happened in Eastern Europe when uh, Honecker, the communist dictator in East Germany, uh, wanted to crush the uh, protests in Leipzig, which was the epicenter of the East German uprising. He sent down an elite paratroop division. Um, and when they got there, because all of the communist officials had their children and relatives in the streets of Leipzig, um, they refused to deploy it. Honecker was out of power within a week. Um, the same thing happened in the Russian Revolution. Uh, 
for all of the violence, uh, largely anarchist violence that took place, which, by the way, Lenin, who I can, am willing to uh, concede was utterly amoral, uh, but uh, Lenin was vehement, vehemently opposed to it. It was only when the divisions in Petrograd defected uh, that essentially all was lost. Um, and it's interesting there, the police didn't defect. So <laughs> you had soldiers firing on the police um, uh, who were universally hated in Tsarist Russia. So, um, and that was true in the Iranian revolution. It was after the Shah fled the country and then the head of the armed forces said they wouldn't uh, use force to defend the regime. And, and so in essence, and it, you, know, you go back to the French revolution, it was also the same. It was those defections uh, that uh, essentially set the stage for uh, the overthrow of the monarchy. So, uh, and Cuba too, by the way. Cuba's history has been completely rewritten largely by Che and Fidel on the whole FOCO theory, which is, and somebody mentioned the Weather Underground. So the Weather Underground read this stuff, which was all garbage. It was complete garbage. The idea that you build an armed FOCO and then the country, you know, this creates an uprising and, uh, it was the national strikes in Cuba that brought down the government and Fidel and the Barbudos had to climb into their trucks and spend three or four days racing to Havana. Now they had the guns and so they could take power, which is exactly what Lenin and the Bolsheviks did. But the, the revolutions do not happen. Uh, and Crane Brinton and Anatomy of a Revolution, Jeffrey Davies, other theorists have written about this, unless there is enough defections within the ruling apparatus to create paralysis. And that's done through nonviolence. It's done through an appeal to conscience. So you had, for instance, in the Russian Revolution, Russian workers going out and uh, fraternizing with the Cossacks and uh, with soldiers. And because of World War I, every village had sons or husbands or fathers in the army. Um, so yeah, nonviolence just doesn't work. It, 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 you know, I covered different types of conflicts. I covered, as I said, the civil wars in Central America. Um, I covered uh, the first Gulf War, which was largely between mechanized units in a desert. Uh, and, uh, and then I covered occupations like Gaza. Uh, and occupations are always... Uh, you know, you, you can't win them in the end because the entire populace, as soon as you leave the wire, the perimeter is viewed with some justification as hostile. Um, you never rarely see your enemy. Um, it's IEDs and ambushes. They melt away in snipers. Uh, you start taking casualties. You lash out incoherently at the civilian population, which exacerbates the problem. This is what happened in Vietnam. So, um, uh, there, there are moments, Sarajevo was one, when, you know, we were surrounded by the Serbs, uh, by the Bosnian Serb forces. They were dropping 2,000 shells a day on the city. And these were, since you're all in the military, these were, this wasn't 60 millimeter mortars. These were 90 millimeter tank rounds, Katushas, uh, uh, 155, or the Soviet equivalent of 155 howitzers, big, big stuff. Um, and they built a trench system around the city. It was like World War One, and every once in a while, some crazy Bosnian commander would like uh, fire starbursts up in the middle of the night, and you'd hear yelling, and these guys would run forward like it was the Somme, and all get mowed down by machine guns. Um, 
But we knew what would happen if the Serbs broke through that perimeter. They'd slaughter a third of the city and the rest would be driven into refugee or displacement camps. The women would be put in rape camps for a few weeks before they were executed uh, because that's what they'd done in Vukovar and the Drina Valley and everywhere else. So at that point, you pick up a weapon. I mean, you're, uh, you're facing a truly existential threat. Um, but again, you know, it, it empowers the worst elements within a society. The original defenses in Sarajevo were run by gangsters who already had access to weapons and a pension for violence. And when they weren't holding off the Serbs, they were going into the apartments of ethnic Serbs and robbing them and often executing them. So, uh, you know, there, there are periods when violence becomes a matter of self-preservation, uh, but once you start speaking that language, um, you know, the worst elements of a society rise, I think, to the top. Um, uh, so nonviolence is the only tactic uh, just from a practical point of view that we have. And then from a moral point of view, having been around a lot of violence, I'm just not willing to, to engage in that kind of activity. As far as Antifa, these are juvenile kids largely white male middle-class kids alienated uh, who show up in places like Oakland with $600 worth of knee pads and stuff and throw rocks through windows. I mean, they're, they're a gift to the security state, um, especially since they cover their faces. Um, they drive away uh, those who, uh, uh, you know, might want to join the movement. Um, they, uh, allow the state to demonize the movement. I, mean, I think anybody who wants to uh, carry out acts of civil disobedience or resistance would do well to read their all public counterinsurgency manuals because uh, you, you, they, you look at how uh, counterinsurgency operations work, and I watched five years of it in El Salvador, uh, and Antifa is just a gift to those people that want to shut down widespread protest. The black bloc. Let's Antifa split between, you know, people who embrace the kind of anarchic violence of the black bloc uh, and those who don't. So we can't get all of Antifa. But the, you know, the fact is, if you want to confront people with long-barreled weapons, you better have long-barreled weapons of your own. Rocks don't really count for much. Um, kind of going along in that vein, I, I'm a pretty big fan of Gene Sharp, so I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, nonviolence, like, is really the only way to, like, get people to focus on uh, the violence of the state, for sure. And so, like, going along with that, a lot of nonviolence, I mean, it doesn't always require big movements of people. But in a lot of ways, it does. And since we can't congregate in really big groups of people right now, how can we, uh, you know, how can we do this? How can we organize and do all that stuff while we're social distancing? Because that, so that seems to make it really hard. So we're going to have all sorts of de facto strikes uh, because people don't have money. Uh, so pretty soon, people aren't going to be paying. I mean, What's going to happen? Oh, you know, of course, we privatized all our utilities. Are they going to shut everyone's water off? Are they going to shut everyone's electricity off? I mean, they're that heartless and callous and greedy. They might, and that's stupid. Uh, what's going to happen to all the renters uh, who can't pay their rent? What's going to happen to the big banks that own the student debt? Uh, what's going to happen to the credit card companies? 
so uh, that is going to be a de facto form of resistance, even for people who aren't even conscious of resisting. Uh, that's the next step. And that's going to drive the state nuts. Uh, they may try more bailouts, but I've lived through hyperinflation in Argentina and Nicaragua and Yugoslavia. And that w once you have hyperinflation, which means your money is largely worthless. I mean, we're in Nicaragua. We, I remember carried around also true in Argentina, uh, paper bags full of money that, you know, to buy a loaf of bread or something that is, uh, all the credibility of the state instantly evaporates. And, I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to tell you that's where we're headed. Um, but um, if that happens, uh, if they just keep printing money, um, they're certainly flirting with hyperinflation. And if hyperinflation happens, then, uh, then you get into a kind of Weimar situation um, where the ruling elites, which don't have much credibility, by the way, anyway, are uh, just pushed aside. Now, often what comes next is really ugly. That's what happened in fascist Germany or Italy. We were saved by, people say we were saved by Roosevelt. No, we were saved by the Communist Party, which has kind of been written out of American history, uh, the Progressive Party, the militant unions like the CIO, uh, and Roosevelt in his private correspondence, which I've read uh, to his brother, published after his death, he used the word revolution. He said, if we don't respond, there will be a revolution. Uh, and Roosevelt supposedly said that his greatest achievement was that he saved capitalism, which is right. But we don't have a Roosevelt uh, now. Uh, we have a, uh, a Donald Trump and a, and a Joe Biden who wants to, I hear, put Jamie Dimon in as the Treasury Secretary. So we're in deep, deep trouble. Um, and the capitalists, the capital, corporate capitalist class, which uh, not only destroyed the radical movements that put pressure on the liberal class. I mean, the, the best writer on, I, when I wrote my book, Death of the Liberal Class, I told Noam Chomsky, I probably should have put you down as a co-author because everything I've learned about the nature of liberal institutions and how they function comes from Chomsky. Um, but Chomsky, uh, you know, elucidated for me that the function of the liberal class, which is to, as a kind of safety valve, that it ameliorates the most egregious activities of the capitalist class uh, to uh, essentially stifle or hold at bay any kind of real dissent or resistance. And then it's allowed its peculiar position in uh, the uh, capitalist society because it is used to discredit radicals who question the system itself. So, I mean, I've been a victim of this when I uh, was very vocal about the call to invade Iraq on the day of the invasion. Uh, I had 15 minutes on NPR. Uh, I think it was on Fresh Air. I can't remember the show. And the other 15 minutes was given to, actually, I know him. He was a friend, Michael Ignatiev. Uh, and so Michael played his liberal credentials. I opposed the Vietnam War, humanitarian intervention. We have to liberate the people of Iraq. Uh, and, you know, that's why he was the head of the Carr Center uh, at, at Harvard and uh, given, you know, ample space to write long magazine pieces defending empire, which he did in the New York Times magazine. Um, so, but the, the capitalist class, after destroying the radical movements, disemboweled the liberal establishment itself. So you end up with these faux liberals like Clinton, 
or Tony Blair, who speak in the feel your pain language of liberalism, but assiduously serve corporate power. And that, of course, has created the political crisis that and economic crisis that we are currently facing. Um, so uh, hyperinflation would definitely be the death blow. Um, that Then it's all over. Then none of the ruling elites, no matter what their political position is, uh, given any credibility or support and is very quickly pushed aside. But, but you know, uh, Europe in the 1930s went one way. Uh, we went another. Um, but given the configurations of American society, uh, I, I, don't, I don't see the pressure points by which we can respond rationally to the crisis. Um, you know, we're already enveloped by the kind of magical thinking uh, that characterizes uh, totalitarian societies. Uh, Trump does it at every press briefing that he has, not that I watch them. Um, and uh, we have built within the system a fascistic movement, uh, the Christian right, who are Christian heretics, who have uh, fused the iconography and language of American patriotism with a Christian religion, just like the German Christian church did under Nazism. It was a fusion of Nazism with Christian symbols. Um, and uh, has created uh, educational systems and uh, broadcast systems that uh, we don't, you know, a lot of us don't watch it, but I had to watch it for two years. Everybody should watch it because it's really frightening. Um, and that, you know, fascism, when it arises in a country, always dresses itself in kind of comforting native garb. If you, you know, Italian fascism was very different from German fascism. It was not, by the way, anti-Semitic at the beginning, and never virulently anti-Semitic the way the Nazis were. But for Mussolini, it was about re the recreation of the whole of the Roman Empire. That he was, you know, the new Augustus, uh, and our fascism will become rat will come wrapped in, uh, you know, the Christian cross and the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, it already is. It's already out there, and and it is rapidly filling Trump's ideological void. All these figures like Pence and Betsy DeVos and uh, Eric Prince, Betsy DeVos's brother, who founded Blackwater and <coughs> runs these for-profit mercenary armies. That's a, and we just saw a New York Times expose about how they infiltrated teachers' union. I mean, these are the, their version of the brown shirts. So um, there's a lot in place to very quickly turn this country into uh, an, an overt police state. Well, you know, um, one of the things that's been tossed around and, you know, Kagan kind of mentioned is this, this general strike, um, in my home borough, uh, on Staten Island, uh, for my sense, uh, the only borough, of course, that to voted for Trump, uh, totally unsurprising given my, uh, brief time in the, you know, Eric Garner protest down there when I was teaching at West Point, which was a whole other thing. But, uh, you know, Christian Smalls, this guy led really more of a protest than, than a strike and uh and yet the threat for, to amazon was just so intense that that he's fired within two hours right I mean, and, and he was basically you know he was crying on, on jimmy door but you know jimmy door uh whatever one thinks of him calls essentially for a general strike uh and so building on kagan's question about you know in a time of social distancing i mean is this time for a general strike and what what would that look like well it's hard to strike if you don't have work um, I think that 
I mean, will there be a general strike? I mean, I suppose low-wage workers, the people like who work at Amazon, who work at fast food, I mean, yes. I mean, that it is certainly time. Um, uh, but you have huge sectors of the working class who are all at home. They're not at work. They're not, the businesses are shut down. Um, I, I suppose a general strike if it if it's held at like places like Whole Foods, which they had a one day walkout, um, is important. Um, but I think that what's going to truly cripple the economy uh, is going to be the lack of revenue that they can extract from the population. I mean, seventy percent of the U.S. economy is driven by consumption, and people not only aren't consuming, you know, they're reaching an economic point where they can't consume. Um, and that becomes a kind of, again, a de facto strike. Um, but I, I, you know, other than those kind of low wage workers who are delivering our packages and, uh, and cooking and, and carrying it out, I, I think that, that if, um, I mean, I think those strikes will tend to be more localized. I mean, for instance, Whole Foods, if they want to, they can finally deal with it. Um, uh, uh, but I think given the, the significant percentage of the American working class that just isn't going to have work, it's going to take more than a general strike to bring these people down. Yeah, that's a great point. One of the things that has struck me is, I mean, the degree of leverage that for all the mismatch, the degree of leverage that demand in itself, consumption and demand provides uh, the working class or just the masses. But, um, you know, we've taken a bunch of your time, so I just want to like pivot to uh, probably one last thing. Uh, and, and it involves your background to a certain extent. You know, you came out of divinity school, um, empathy and ethical sense really do seem to permeate all of your work. You know, here at Fortress on a Hill, we discuss broad issues, but tend to focus on the warfare state, the empire. Uh, as to ethics this morning, uh, you know, brutal plug, but th this morning at antiwar.com, I essentially declared war on half of my former institution, uh, quite frankly, friends, some of whom I imagine I may lose. Uh, the surface topic was the firing of Captain Crozier. Uh, but really what I'm arguing is that the time for polite fiction of, you know, intellectual and moral equivalency uh, on these matters of war and peace and broader really ought to be behind us. So I'm thinking specifically of, you know, America's escalatory war in Iraq or the calls for it from Pompeo and Esper, both class of 86, of course, West Point, uh, and the broader Middle East, as well as like the crippling sanctions regime that seems to be tightening. So I guess what I want to ask is, you know, what do you see as the ethical implications of the Pentagon and other power structures response to this, you know, what I would call COVID opportunism? Well, it's interesting. I mean, having been with a combat unit uh, and a good combat unit, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, uh, both the CO, the XO, and the Sergeant Major were all Vietnam vets. This was in the first Gulf War. I saw good leadership. I mean, this Colonel Fallon, Lieutenant Colonel Fallon, he was a great commander. And um, uh, because I, I learned very early on covering war, that the higher up you go in the the structure of the military, the more bullshit you were fed because the more careerists they were until you got to generals who are uh, very good at doing what they were told, but not very good at thinking. Um, so I spent most of my time with privates and Lance corporals and 
sergeants. And I remember uh, Fallon asking me, I liked him quite a bit, and ask, asking me because I was, you know, sp spent a lot of time with his grunts, what they, uh, what they thought of him. And I said, well, Colonel Fallon, they hate officers, but they all say Colonel Fallon cares about his men. And he teared up and he said, that's all I care about. And then when we got over, when we were in Kuwait, I actually went on to Basra for the Shiite uprising by myself and then was taken prisoner by the Iraqi Republican Guard. Um, but we, we had the state platoon, the, the sniper and surveillance squad that went over first, and they got very badly shot up. We had seven wounded, one quite seriously. And then when the division came over, the Iraqis threw down their weapons and didn't want to fight. But uh, when I said goodbye to him, uh, you know, I told him, I, I said, you are like Crozier. You care about your men, you and women, in the case of Crozier. Um, and, and that is the essence of a good leader, whether it's in the military or anywhere else. And he, Fallon said to me, I'm taking all my men home. And again, a tear rolled down his face. And uh, so I did find the Crozier thing kind of interesting because here was an example of leadership of, you know, when, you know, and a lot of officers don't care about their men or women. Um, you know, they can't, they'll send them out to some firefight, uh, which is unnecessary and gets people harmed so, so they can have a tailor rush in and sew a combat infantry badge on their uniform. Uh, uh, and they're quite willing to sacrifice uh, their men or women for their own advancement, um, like anywhere else. And the military is not immune to that. So uh, Petraeus would be a good example of that. So um, that I did find that thing about Crozier uh, interesting because it was an example of uh, the military punishing what is good leadership. Uh, and, and what is vital, especially once you go into combat, the people, they want to know that, um, that, that you actually do care and they know, they know. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of, uh, empathy, I mean, the disease of empire is that it, uh, and, and this would be the disease of militarism or violence is that it, you have to dehumanize the other in order to kill them. Uh, and so built into any kind of nationalist rhetoric uh, is always our nationalism itself is really colored by racism. It's about the elevation of us over them. It's about the dehumanization of the other. Um, and this makes you utterly tone deaf. It makes you, I mean, the fact that we went into countries like Afghanistan and Iraq, and I, again, spent seven years, not in Afghanistan, but in the Middle East, and a lot of time in Iraq, I speak Arabic, and you're just culturally, linguistically, uh, religiously illiterate. Uh, you, you can't even speak the language. Uh, then you respond, uh, you communicate the only way you can, which is through force and violence. Uh, and again, going back to our discussion of occupation, that becomes counterproductive. Uh, I mean, you get some frightened kid, 19-year-old kid, who's being shot at in a village, and he's got in his hands a belt-fed saw, and he's just blasting away at these mud hovels, so, you know, when nobody goes back to check to see what has happened to the people inside, well, you've just created, you know, 100 new insurgents. 
Uh, and this is what we did in Vietnam. It's what the French did in Algeria. Uh, it's uh, using wholesale violence as the only way to communicate when you're occupying other countries is, uh, is deeply counterproductive. And that's, of course, what we've done. Uh, and, uh, and why we are eventually going to have to leave the Middle East in humiliation. Well, Chris, uh, I tacitly promised an hour and, uh, for once in our, uh, I mean mine mostly, uh, immense verbosity, it seems that we're, we're pretty close. Um, so you know, we're, we're going to let you go and wrap up, which is amazing that we're at 59 minutes. Um, but I just want to say that, you know, first of all, people should check out uh, America the Farewell Tour. Are you, are you working on a book right now, Chris? Yeah, I'm writing a book on because, you know, I teach in a, I'm teaching in prisons for 10 years through Rutgers. So I'm writing a book on prisons. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, that, that's awesome and incredible work and something we need because clearly the uh, the prison industrial complex is so much part of Eisenhower's more simplistic uh, analysis of the military industrial complex. But, you know, definitely check out uh, the forthcoming book, uh, his recent uh, his recent work on America, the Farewell Tour, as well as the RT show. Something I just want to say, and, and it... Listeners to the pod, we, we have a bunch, but a lot of them are veterans, naturally. Um, and credibility of experience, it, it really shouldn't be necessary, but it just shines through with you. I mean, even just the little things like, you know, using the acronym SAW for machine guns and understanding the difference between a 60 millimeter small bang and a 155 large bang. I mean, it's just going to shine through, uh, which means a lot to folks uh, who are listening and demonstrates that the the value of, of journalism and analysis to uh to the military structure and it's so easily dismissed but uh you know your modesty may not countenance this particularly well but the fellows and i were talking on our last pod uh which will release probably today or tomorrow and just the other day about you know how noam chomsky who you mentioned uh although he's as lucid and poignant as ever amazingly well into his 90s can't possibly god forbid uh, stick around forever. And just given the quality of your work and your connections with folks like Cornell West, you know, we all agreed. And I think it's safe to say that, you know, you along with precious few others uh, will and already have sort of begun to take up his mantle. So once more, thanks for taking the time, Chris. Yeah. Uh, I know our listeners are going to be excited to hear your thoughts and uh, we wish you and yours as much health and happiness as is possible in this moment. Great. Well, thanks for doing it, Danny. Yeah, glad to. And uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. Okay. Uh, hopefully we'll set up that RT thing whenever they can do it. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. I'm looking forward to it for sure. Plenty to talk about, I imagine, as always. Okay. All right. Take it easy. Talk soon, Chris. Bye-bye. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify you name it, almost anywhere you listen we're already waiting for you and hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com and if you're not into giving us a monthly payment think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal the link is in the show notes skepticism is one's best armor.
never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not.